0: Warning The following zone of truth contains major spoilers for Paizo's Curse of the Crimson Throne Adventure Path. Listener discretion is advised. The dead never sleep. Condemned by a history of horrors, an army of the living dead stands between Corvosa and its only hope for salvation. Within the grim fastness of Haunted Scarwall, the lifeless legions of the ancient warlord Kazavan guard the same accursed halls they've been stalking for more than seven hundred years. Crossing a forsaken land to reach the infamous Citadel's dreaded gates, the PCs must explore the foul castle's haunted halls, contend with otherworldly terrors, and purge the taint of Kazavan's final days before having any hope of finally breaking the curse of the Crimson Throne. This week on Zone of Truth, Griff and I bring the rest of Scarwall's cleanup crew to discuss our single-book run of Paizo's Adventure Path number 11, Skeletons of Scarwall. We chat about high-level play, our wild characters, and answers some questions from our listeners. I'm your host, Steve, in studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in the zone of truth.
1: And we're back. We're back, baby. This is the most crowded this room has ever been. There's way too many people in here. Um, Big mistake already, I know. Yeah, it's hot. Uh, Yeah. But in other news, Zone of Truth is 21 today. And what does that mean, Griff? We can drink now. Hell yeah. Now we can finally drink on the Zone of Truth. How's your week been, man? Dude, my week has been pretty, pretty good. Yeah? We had, you know, it wasn't as busy as past weeks have been recently. Yep. Uh, got to chill out, got to play some video games. Only had to record one episode. Uh, only had one character die in uh, Return of the Rune Lords. It's mm-hmm. been, you know, it's been pretty good.
0: Yeah, man. Two episodes of The Mandalorian dropped. New Star Wars game. I'm on Cloud fucking Nine, man. It's been great. Yeah, I
1: can just imagine you just sitting in your dark apartment watching that by yourself. Yeah, that's uh, that's it exactly. Eating a bag of lettuce, no dressing. Just <laughs> yeah, that's open, how I do. Open you on your know. lap. You know what's up. Yeah. So now that we've turned 21, what are you drinking today? I am drinking a Bon & Viv Spike Seltzer, this time the cranberry flavor. How about you, buddy? Nice, man.
0: I'm working my way through the rest of my Philly beers from a couple months ago. This one's coming from Maniunk Brewing. This is the Swan Dive. It's a Pina Colada Ghost Ale. I had a couple of these last night. They're fucking great. Mmm.
2: Ghosts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a descriptive
1: flavor. Everybody will understand. It's pina colada, man. It's sweet. It's good as hell. You know what else is good as hell? What is the people we have in this room hell waiting, just waiting to talk? Yes.
0: So it's the fullest the tables ever been. Like we've said before, I'm getting a head shake from Haley. Don't know what that's about. Let's introduce her. What's up, Haley?
3: It's you guys. Both said it. It's not the fullest it's been on Zona Truth. It sure is on Zona Truth. But in and it's recording, the, and it's the it's most not. people
0: on mic.
3: But we have had both uh, Tim and Chris in for that trial one, which is the same amount of people that we have in here. But Just they weren't on mic,
1: Haley. They were not on mic. Oh, and you could hear them. Well, that makes, <laughs> them, that makes them half of a person on mic at best. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. but So we're right. Well, okay. Haley sp- spilled the beans here. We have a lot of your Zone of Truth favorites. We got Eric, we got Tim, and we got Chris, but we have a newcomer. the zone of truth my buddy john who has been playing with me haley and eric since we started well since me haley and him started playing pathfinder and eric took us under his wing john is one of the longest turn takers i've ever met
4: (laughs) (laughs) a title i defend proudly (laughs) But,
1: but also one of my best friends in the world john introduce yourself
4: uh, I'm John. I'm Griff's friend. Uh, I actually yeah, have been playing tabletop gaming with him and Eric for almost like three years now. Right? F- more than that? Yeah, more than Is that it, Oh this my point. God. Wow. Yeah. Uh, we met actually Eric at a Pokemon Go bar crawl. <laughs> yeah, we, talked, we talked about <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> we just yeah. bumped into this guy that wanted to play D&D. It, it was weird. We became friends really quickly. But um, yeah, I've known Griff since I've lived in Ohio. We're both uh PA boys so that runs deep Philly yeah uh
1: i don't know that's it that's
4: uh
1: that's really all there is to me I <laughs> well, I'd ask you about your uh TTRPG experience but have you played any games outside of our group no
4: this is this is it yeah, I, this is i'm, I'm very group. loyal yeah. i'm monogamous and my... like <laughs> monogamous
3: <laughs> what are you drinking
4: i am drinking a seven sun humulus nimbus pale ale which is a uh columbus brewery Nice. We'll crack into it, dude. Oh, it's it's. Oh, you already cracked <laughs> it. Okay.
3: That intro was a uh, was a bit long. Oh, yeah, I yeah. think we've all started drinking.
0: I was Fair. Yeah, yeah. I right. tried to do that intro in one breath, and that did not fucking. No, happen. that didn't
1: work. I'm leaving those breaths in. <laughs> Good. All right. Next in the order, Eric. What you drinking, dude? I have a
2: <clears throat> a virtue cider mitten beer, which I picked up when I was in Michigan with my family. I picked it up before this since I knew we were going to wrap up Scarwall eventually. Um, To be honest, I have no idea how to open this. It's a corked bottle, so I hope this doesn't explode. Are you feeling it, Twist? You got to kind of wiggle it back and forth.
1: The whole room is cringing. I'm in the splash (laughs) Uh, (laughs) zone. You're doing it right by the mic.
0: Tim Tim is covered in a plastic tarp. (laughs) (laughs) It it's fucking SeaWorld all over again. Tim, huge fan of Blue Man Group, knows what he's in for. I <laughs> have
2: a is fantastic.
1: Thumb? Oh, I believe.
2: Oh boy. Be oh,
1: everybody duck and cover. <laughs>
2: Jesus, this is the most anticipation I've had built up all week. <laughs> what part of I don't know how to open this. Did you not understand? <laughs> across the table, I'll get this is
0: a it. fucking disaster.
2: Have him passed it over?
0: I disaster. know what happened. Oh,
2: it's gone. It's gone.
5: He's got a couple, couple millimeters going.
1: Everybody cover your eyes. <laughs> Jesus Lord. How big is this cork? Has anyone ever
4: lost an eye on a <laughs> podcast in real time? This well, could be it. This, this could, could be, be the it. one. We this could, could be history. history.
2: Everybody behind your pop shields. Well, that was
0: Hugely anticlimactic. Um, so
2: yeah, this is a cider. Sploosh. I actually went to their orchery, I guess, and it's aged in bourbon barrels. So it's delicious.
1: I think the word you were looking for is just orchard. <laughs> I don't know if it's an orchery. Orchery. <laughs>
0: but yeah, delicious. The, the man's been taking archery classes or going to do an
1: archery or whatever lately. He's got archery on the brain. He's got archery yeah. on the mind. Archery on the brain. That's when you're a half-orc and you are also an archer. Yeah. You practice archery.
0: Well, up next is, uh, you know, I've been playing with him just as long as I've been playing TTRPGs. Uh, good friend of the show, been on a whole bunch of times. Hey, Tim.
5: Lover 69 on the Discord, if you know him. Yeah, that's me. Uh, forever stuck with that tag. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They'll write it on your tombstone someday.
5: <laughs> yeah, um, well, I'm happy to be here. I'm drinking the Funkworks Tropic King Imperial Saison, and uh, it's delicious. It's surprisingly high in alcohol, so we'll see how far it takes me today. Oh, my dad would agree with that. Yeah? He loves a good Saison. Oh, yeah. It's good. All right. Crusty crust,
1: my friend. Hello there, and hello, dear listeners. Are you drinking crushed-up birds, or do you have an actual beverage in front of you?
6: I, uh, I'm straying away from the fermented birds today. For the twenty-first zone of truth, I am drinking a brew from Twenty-First Amendment Brewery. Oh, Fireside right. oh. chat. You're
1: more thematic than anyone else in the room.
6: <laughs> yeah, completely on accident. I didn't mean to do that. Don't, don't tell anybody that.
0: Well, too late. Well, we're glad to have you here, Chris. How's that beer tasting?
6: It's wonderful. It's got a, a, a good spice to
0: it. And did we ever ask Haley what she was drinking? I don't think so. Nope. What you drinking, Haley? Haley what you drinking?
3: I'm drinking a not-so-great uh, cider, as in it's a uh, cider from Strongbow. It's rosé, and I don't, I don't love, like, rosés, so it's not so great. But I have Viking blood on the side that I will probably try and finish today. Not oh, angling for
6: that Strongbow sponsorship, I
5: see. Like, Their
3: pair is great. Their rosé sucks.
1: As with most things, rosé. I
5: like how you say I it's on the side it. and it's like a liter bottle. Like it's
1: <laughs> <like> <laughs> huge. My sidearm. <laughs> this little, little gallon of mead. When, when, when your side
0: action's better than your regular action. <laughs> All right, folks. So, reason we brought everybody here today. We've been playing for a little while. We finally finished um, this book all this this one book only run that we pulled from curse of the crimson throne it was something eric's been wanting to do for a very long time uh finally do some high level play do this uh, do this one book that's basically almost could be its own adventure and uh we just wrapped it up and wanted to chat about it so i think the first thing that we want to do is have eric introduce what the hell's going on
1: there's actually one thing before that son of a fuck
0: (laughs) (laughs) got him all right, this uh, this is the palace from uh,
2: Exotic Palace.
3: You're so enthused. He you know, was
2: so adamant he would have it this time. I was going to make a bingo card, and that was going to be the free square. <laughs> Do you forget Sirenscape, free square. Show sucks. All right, so... Well, you make it, so what's <laughs> that
0: say about you? I know. I know what I am, Griffin. All right, so, anyway... One book run. It's the 11th Adventure Path book that Paizo put on. Part part 5 of 6 of Curse of the Crimson Throne. Eric, why did we do this? And what is
2: it? So, the book 5 of Curse of the Crimson Throne is really a giant undead castle. Um, The little bit of lore behind it is there's this ancient noble who's failed at being a commander... Praise to not his regular deity, but the deity of his ancestors of Zonkusan, who sends this mercenary to come help him start winning wars because he's terrible at it. That mercenary is Kazavan, who not only wins that war, but becomes almost approaching the levels of the whispering tyrant level of just starting to take over the world. And then that noble has to start gathering forces to try to overthrow the mercenary he brought into the lands and included in the forces that he's gathered are the esoteric order of the palatine eye and the head general of that actually has this heirloom weapon granted by Iomde herself that is kind of the fetch quest for this adventure from the chapter conclusion again major spoilers this is book five of curse the crimson throne um this is the first paragraph of the chapter conclusion which is put out by Paizo at the very end of the books. Unlike other chapters of this adventure path, the completion of this chapter has little direct impact or repercussion on the overall campaign plot other than providing the PCs with a weapon capable of besting Queen Iliosa, who is kind of the end game boss. So it's really great to run as a one shot because you have this massive castle that the PCs can just go murder hobo in this giant under castle sandbox i've never done high level play before so it's fun to see okay what can you do starting at a level 13 and going up to end at 15 the final goal of the adventure is again quoting the book here regardless of how you present scarwall to your group keep in mind that at the end you need to ensure two things occur the pcs ne- need to retrieve the braid seraph deal, and they need to earn enough experience so that by the time they're done They're at least extremely close to 16th level if they haven't already reached it. Assuming that both these conditions are met by the time your group completes this penultimate chapter of Curse of the Crimson Throne, how they get there is irrelevant as long as you have fun along the way. So what I did is I just assumed that the party that started the campaign died in Book 4, and this group was put together and okay, we have to go get this sword because we need to finish the AP.
1: And find the several level 13 yes. <laughs> people so, in the land.
2: <laughs> it turned into, and behind John here, we have an undead kill count of, let's see if we can get people to just show off. And the goal is, again, my goals were to see what high level play is, give everybody a chance to show off. And run Scarwall because it's a giant undead castle. I saw printouts of people who made this map to scale, and it's literally the size of a room. All the maps are printed as 10-foot squares, which is terrible. Um, I feel that pain. So I gave you guys a couple, a very generous amount of things to start with your characters, and uh, it was a blast. So I had a lot of fun, and uh, I think we'll get into that. So thank you for letting me run this. It was a blast, and we'll go from there. Yeah, it was cool. Uh, I,
0: I know I'm, I'm not sure who else in the room has, but Tim and I have run some high level play before, but it's been a long time, so it's, it was good to get back into the uh, the mindset of a character that has a billion abilities. Uh, we came in at 13th level for this adventure so all of our characters well I shouldn't say all, but the vast majority of our characters were super optimized for undead and evil <laughs> don't say all which which meant that we could just steamroll some of these encounters and really just like have a couple beers and have a total like bloodbath like badass good time. Um, and I kind of like to talk about those characters if if you guys are ready to do that.
1: oh yeah. Yeah, man. Tim, I
0: want to save yours. Okay. Yeah, save the best <laughs> yeah. for last. Um, but I think I'm
2: getting a, a a nod from Eric. What's going on, dude? So the rules I gave everybody to make the characters so you can have a little perspective on where they're coming from. I did a 30-point buy using the world is square variant rules. So that's a character wealth by level of 140,000 gold. And you have no scores lower than 8 or higher than 17 before racial modifiers at level 1. You also couldn't worship Zonkathon. All right.
0: Um, I, th- I think the person who should start us off with this, I think, is you, Griffin, because you've teased this character several times on the Zone of Truth before. People are already relatively
1: familiar with what you're putting out for this. Yeah. So Eric prefaced this with he wanted it to be uh, a way for us to show off at... at 13th level bringing these characters that are crazy optimized and can shred a castle of undead i wanted to show off in a different way and see if i could make a kobold uh very powerful and so my character was for uh spelled freckle and he was known that known by that because he started off as a black dragon kobold, but worshipped Apsu, went into Dragon Disciple and started developing these gold scale freckles. Um, but he was, uh, at the by the end, he was an Oracle 5, so he was a battle oracle and a Dragon's Disciple 10. The reason I could do that is kobolds have a racial feat that allows you to go from a divine class into... Dragon's Disciple, which is really cool and unique to them or, I guess, humans using, like, the, the um, alternate racial ancestry stuff. So, really unique to kobolds, something only kobolds can do, and I wanted to give it a shot. Uh, prestige classes, I really haven't done anything with a prestige class before, so I was really excited to try a Dragon's Disciple and make this character that, that still had basically full casting progression be a melee powerhouse as well. So Fakal, uh had crazy strength even after, you know, the kobold racial modifiers, um, some decent constitution, crazy charisma, and he had full oracle spellcasting. So he was, um, you know, coming in with, he had heal, he had, um, he had plenty of things to kind of keep himself up. He was a very self-sustainable uh, frontliner, but he also had a shitload of natural attacks. He had two attacks with his greatsword. He took powerful wings and was a kobold that started the game with wings, so he could hit twice with his wings, could bite, could hit somebody with his tail. So six attacks in total in a four-round attack was pretty crazy and pretty fun. Um, but, you know, I, I think in terms of being optimized for fighting the undead, he had some stuff. There's a feat called Ghost Slayer I would recommend to my party playing, Carrying Crown. It's a, it's a great feat to use. If you have a plus two weapon, you can make it Ghost Touch as a swift action. It's pretty legit if you think you're going to be fighting a lot of incorporeal, which I thought we would be here. So I used it. But other than that, I guess just being an oracle is kind of a, hey, I have healing spells that can be turned against the undead. I have some stuff that I can use to protect myself against the undead. But he wasn't, he wasn't like favorite enemy undead or any of that stuff. Like you can, you can kind of build up in a situation like this. Yeah. Fracal did his share of damage in party. Fracal killed all of the
0: four pillars. Pretty sure. All right. So talking about another healer who also was uh, slightly optimized against the undead, my boy Krusty Krust, a.k.a. Chris, you were coming in with a very authentically accented Osiriani.
1: Yeah. Oh, should, we, <laughs> should we go around with our accents? I feel like Fakal was from Brooklyn. Uh, do yours.
6: Hello. I am a Pomet from Osiriani.
1: So that makes sense so <laughs>
6: <Yeah>. <laughs> Because as you know, Osirion is the classically French themed continent <laughs> in uh, Galarian. correct? Yeah, so um, I had never played a, 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 a spellcaster before. The only other Pathfinder character I played was a marshal, a swashbuckler. So I knew I wanted to play cleric because they I mean clerics are fairly some, some builds are fairly good at, at killing Undead. So, yeah, I was a cleric of Ra, um, a Palmet dwarf, which is an interesting dwarf from Osirion. They're actually, they have very tan skin um, and actually golden hair. So, they're actually a really interesting variant of that. Um, the two domains that I took as a cleric of Ra, which is essentially just a ripoff of Serenry, it's almost the exact same domains, um, were the Sun Domain, which gives you a lot of really good abilities against undead. I believe you get to add your cleric level to the damage dealt against undead. And they also have this Nimbus of Light, which is this, as a swift action, you have this, you emanate this 30-foot aura of light that damages undead up to your cleric level if they stay in that aura uh, in a round. So those, those were really interesting. Really optimized for this dungeon. I also had Aura of Heroism. I took the Heroism domain, so I could, in a 30-foot uh, radius, I could give my allies Heroism. Um, and I, I, I used those two, two abilities pretty heavily throughout the uh, throughout the dungeon. Saved um, my life with that shit. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, off the top of my head, there were a couple of really interesting spells I used. One of them was in the Sun domain, you get the spell Sunbeam at high levels, which does a, a whole bunch of fire damage I think has a chance to blind um, blind uh, enemies if they fail a, a, I think it's a reflex save um, the cleric spell Death's Ward, Death's Ward also came in a lot in these dungeons because we were fighting a lot of necromantic undead creatures that had death effects save suck death effects yeah so shielding from that was pretty important as well too i mean there there's just a plethora
1: of cleric spells that we really found useful folks if you're fighting undead get yourself some deathless armor yeah. Whew, that shit's yeah clutch. we did no one had that did we they? did me oh, and, you me and steve's characters did that's why we had like the 25 percent chance that that death effect didn't affect us and we had that it was almost like energy resist 10 against negative energy there it's a pretty cool enchant if you're fighting a bunch of undead
0: yeah i I couldn't think of a situation where we wanted to run this and somebody didn't come in with a cleric i knew you were excited to play a cleric but if we're trying to optimize against undead like i mean that's a no-brainer right yeah for sure yeah very handy. Um, next character here is if we had a police lineup of all of the eventual characters, I could absolutely pick out which one was designed by Haley. Haley, tell us about your character.
3: What the fuck does that mean, Steve? It's an
0: insane alchemist that does crazy shit. Dr. Sal Bacon.
3: Dr. Sal Bacon. So he was based off of um, Archer's Dr. Krieger. Uh, so, you know, red hair, red beard.
1: Is that uh, the whole Piggly thing?
3: Yeah, I had a pig tumor, familiar, that would pop off and pig would run around and, you know, go jump in front of bullets for me, basically. Um, Because I had die for me, for my familiar. Um, But I was a Grenader Alchemist. So, uh, Grenader Alchemists are a very interesting concept. Uh, You have the ability to basically, like, make your make your bombs go from just 20 feet throwing them to strap them on your crossbow shoot them out and then they can go in a directed like cone past that it's cool as hell and i every single one of my feats was like have more alchemist things so that i could continue and can can continue to get different uh bombs different types of bombs different feats for alchemists i was all about it and also um yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess Steve's right. And then all my spells and stuff were usually regarding altering uh, my body in some way. And a lot ex- of vomit. Yeah, like so much vomit. Like I had vomit twin. I had another vomit one. Oh yeah, I could vomit my bombs. That was cool. Um, mm.
1: how, did, how did that Bomb work? Bomb vomit, twin vomit. Yeah, self vomit.
3: How that worked? It, it was a. It's actually part of the. Um, oh, I can't remember what they're called. Discoveries. It's part of a discovery that you can get, and it is is—it is basically a breath attack where you swallow all your bomb ingredients and then you vomit them back out at um, people, and it's a uh, cone coming out from your body. It's very cool. Um, in addition, I had the, like, I wasn't, uh, so when I originally built the character, I was extremely sick, so I, I didn't even think about undead at the time, I just was like, I need an alchemist, and threw it together. So then when I was going through, I was very, very happy to have found out that I bought a couple items. Uh, I bought an item in in particular that I'd have to... I'll I'll get back to you guys on the name of it. But it allows me to treat my weapons as Ghost Touch. And it was amazing, extremely helpful for uh, this, because it also allowed bombs to be treated like ghost stars.
1: Yeah, it was a specific one that allows you to do it with bombs, too. And and you had some wildly clutch
0: moments with that where you used your either gren- Grenadier or Vomit, you know, changing up a line to a cone to a burst um, and going up against several ghosts that were either in a line or some weird configuration. You were able to wipe them out all in one go. It was very versatile for this dungeon. It was really cool.
3: Yeah, that's I feel like this is one of the, the most like truly versatile uh, alchemist builds because you uh, as far as bombs, it has almost nothing with your mutagen. You do nothing. You uh, like that kind of stuff is rare. But you do so many different types of bombs and it is just like here you are, you are literally a grenader. You are sh- like you basically are constantly throwing bombs.
2: Yeah, it was fucking cool. The opening combat had the party lined up on this bridge that's like 15, 20 feet wide. And I sent four rows of, uh, I think there were groups of 12 skeletons just kind of marching down against them. Haley unleashes two bombs and wipes out, I think, the first wave and a half in one round. Yeah, because
3: I was able to choose cone, and then the next thing I was able to choose was, like, line, and it was able to get everybody.
1: That combat really fucked with the score stats, because uh, Steve and I could not get up to the combat (laughs) in time to fight anything, and all our ranged characters had killed everything.
2: Thankfully, those ones didn't count, because they were still the standard CR, like, one or one-half skeletons, but Yes, a very fun opening volley.
3: Okay, yeah, so the item, I I did uh, double-check on it, It is uh, the Amulet of Grasping Souls. That was the item that, uh, when you wear it, it will make um, ghost touch on any natural attacks, weapons that you wield, even thrown weapons and projectiles, which is amazing. There's also some, like, once per day, you can make your spells affect incorporeal creatures as though you're using ectoplasmic spells.
1: Nice. Ah, the ectoplasmic metamagic. The often overlooked ectoplasmic metamagic. How much was that amulet?
3: 20000
4: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. But uh, that's a really good item that I really should have bought.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, coming from me, I don't need a bunch of weapons that are super uh, fancy like your character did. So, with that, I spent my money on those kind of items.
1: <laughs> well, speaking of John's character... I, I, I heard initially you wanted to play a cleric.
4: Yeah, what ini- did you end up with? <laughs> initially, I was going to go cleric, but then since I heard Chris was going to go one, I decided I would try a ranger out, but I decided to go with the Divine Tracker Ranger, and this was really the first range character that I played ever, and also the first high-level character that I'd ever played, other than the Skulls and Shackles character, which got to, like, 11,
1: maybe? I think your Slayer was 12 by the end yeah. of it. Yeah. Which, again,
4: not not ranged. I'm, I'm a real, like... I don't know. I I like neglect decks even though it's one of the best stats in the game. That's like Griff could vouch for me. Like I have this
1: weird yeah. aversion to decks, <laughs> which weirdly worked out for you as a slayer when you played yeah, it in yeah, spells it and shackles because you get to ignore the decks uh the the decks requirements for a bunch of feats, yeah. but yeah,
4: I did really like that slayer. But uh, So this character was a elf ranger, also one of my only non-human characters because I also love humans. <laughs> this, he was a worshiper of Gazra, so pretty much his whole motivation was to purge the land of undead because they're the antithesis to the natural world. Uh, aesthetically, he was kind of inspired by uh, land from Wheel of Time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how just incredible stealth, incredible dexterity. He also had a good amount of strength for how much dex he had. Uh, Other than that, though, he pretty much was very specialized into killing undead. Like, uh, 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 with his favorite enemy being undead. I only actually put it up to a plus 4 rather than it could have been a plus 6 because I was yeah, trying I to spread you took it around some of the yeah. other stuff from, yeah.
1: from the foreboding message Eric right. sent us yeah. with Eric the sent us
4: like a real like demon tower
1: of code.
4: <laughs> yeah. So I yeah, I did take some of those and they they turned we did have to fight some constructs that was another one that I had. So um other than that though, he was oh yeah, the divine tracker so I get to trade my pet for uh, two war priest domains or, or domains, and I took being Gazra, air, and weather, which gave me flight as a uh, blessing, and it gave me, uh, what was the other big one? Like a wind wall. That's so, a- I could, so I could block projectiles. So it was essentially the ultimate sniper because I could hit everyone else and they couldn't hit me.
0: That's That was a great choice, switching out the, the animal for those domains.
4: I, I And I know that one of the big reasons you guys would appreciate that was because as the undisputed king of the longest turns ever, I really didn't want to be playing two characters.
1: If you came in, <laughs> if you came in with a character that has... Like six attacks around, and then a fucking animal companion. I would have walked away from my own table.
4: I'm not gonna (laughs) lie; that was the biggest reason why I was like, "I need to swap out (laughs) this animal companion."
0: We we might (laughs) still be playing that first session. (laughs)
5: Yeah. Uh, All
4: right. Yeah, and that like it was a really fun time doing ranged. I had heard that uh, ranged builds in in the original Pathfinder were good. I hadn't Ken realized that. How, how good that. they were. <laughs> They're very good. <laughs> so yeah, it did really give me a new perspective on uh, on how awesome a high
0: dex is. But well, well, uh, I mean, Mirren really led the kill count until you just had problems showing up for sessions toward the end, and I was able to catch up. But uh, was undoubtedly uh, the probably the deadliest person here.
1: Yeah, very like what again, versus many like, him, yeah, 1v1 me.
4: Very good at just machine gunning down undead. Uh anything other than undead, he quickly became more balanced against the balance. Oh, I also I didn't mention that my favorite terrain was uh, just knowing that we were going to be in a castle was urban like con- so your constru- perception yeah. was crazy. So I pretty much kind of had stuff. these insane bonuses to perception, initiative, and everything at all times. It was it was more specialized than I thought it was going to end up being. Hey, Eric told
1: us to
0: optimize. It's on him.
2: (laughs) That is true, and I think we'll get to why that was
0: a huge mistake later on. (laughs) Yep, we certainly will. So um, at this point, I'm going to run through my character because I did want to save Tim for last uh, because his character has a special place in my heart. My character, um, Alejandro Salazar, I cast him as Pedro Pascal. I was a paladin. And you know, we're fighting undead, right? Gotta have a cleric. Probably should have a paladin as well. I took the Oath of Chastity because I was going, you role played. <laughs> because I was going to do a vanilla paladin just to learn the class and then realized, oh my god, this flavor is fucking hilarious. So uh Oath of Chastity. Uh, basically you trade in some of your benefits to your saves for um i think i think it's like a the fortification or whatever where you get basically a 50 percent chance to nullify critical or at least knock down critical hits to standard hits or sneak attack to standard hits which is super important in high level play that's what i was thinking yeah because a critical in, in high level play can completely change a combat or take you out of it but uh i i really enjoyed playing alejandro um it's funny because he was a cleric. So the stat that's not physical that I was going to dump a ton of points into was charisma. So he was in, I mean, my charisma right now isn't, is up to a 22 at the end of this. So like God level sexiness, but he will not sleep with you because he has an oath of chastity, which I absolutely loved. Um, he has a ton of super
1: clutch auras Dude, the uh, playing with another high charisma character, mm-hmm. the ability to share your smite was absolutely devastating. And
0: that's yeah, that that was that's one of them because yeah, Griffhead has a, a huge huge charisma as well. So we were able to share smites. So we were both doing tons of damage per round. Um, I, I was given bonuses to fear effects. I was given bonuses. Um, I would at every attack my allies made around me again within a radius against evil counted as good for bypassing damage reduction, which absolutely came up huge in a couple encounters. And then all of the lay on hands, the channeling that I got super effective. At one point, I had an item that allowed me to, um, to uh, lay on hands through the item, so I did the regular item damage, Plus the lay on hands positive damage against evil or undead.
1: That's a ton of stuff. When we play Tui, can the lay on hands from uh, the chaotic good paladin be lay on hams and just kill anything that's lawful? <laughs> All right, so uh,
0: so we got no pants. We got bird points. Now we have lay on hands. hands. All right, cool. Tui's the looking trifecta. Good. The trifecta. The getting weird trifecta. <laughs> uh yeah but the the beyond that um not a whole much to comment on for uh Alejandro Salazar I really enjoyed playing him. it was fun to I had I kind of had a little bit of a dynamic play where I was important just to be around but then if I wasn't smiting I wasn't really putting up a whole lot of damage um so I had a little bit of an economy to smite or not to smite um it was a fun one to play it, it challenged me in, in ways that I wasn't really expecting. But there's a player at our table who uh, was challenged every time he sat down here with us. Some might say <laughs> mentally. You, mentally my and not, physically.
5: I have a decent intelligence. I'll have you mine. 12. Oh, I'm all not, right. Um, 10. Not, not
0: mentally challenged. Okay, well, we're going to move past that. <laughs> Tim, you played a character called Orgil.
5: Orgil McFlubber. Yes, because <laughs> the best thing to pair with a, a, a paladin who has the Oath of Chastity is going to be uh, an Ooze Morph Shifter. Yeah. Right? Everyone knows that. Everybody knows. <laughs> That's what they the
1: Ooze Morph Shifter. <laughs> Sorry. Nerf it. I expected a lot of
5: head nods. Too powerful. Okay, fine. Uh, w- so I you know Eric said we're going to be level 13 the nice thing about being level 13 is you're not level 1 which means you don't have to play as being out. level 1 right you get to play as level 13 okay. you may be wondering checks out. <laughs> yeah yep. so Tim are you high <laughs> I mentioned how strong this beer was <laughs> uh, so so when you're level 1 as an oozmorph shifter as an example, there are, I think there are other instances where this is useful. Your, your character is absolutely absolutely useless. But if you go up to level 13, you're able to skip the beginning levels of Pathfinder and really come into your own without doing anything at all. So the Use Morph Shifter is perfect for this because uh, there are several problems with the Use More Shifter at level one. One being that you can only be in any sort of humanoid form for one hour. <laughs> because it's 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 one hour per level. But if you take several levels, it's not so bad, right? You can do your adventuring day and you can have like several hours of being useful. Uh but if you're an Uzmore shifter at level one, you just get to be useful for one hour per day.
2: So um, what does a level thirteen Uzmore shifter look like?
5: Well, so it looks really bad. So <laughs> what I decided to do instead was take <laughs> s- six levels of Ooze Morph Shifter uh, and multi-class into Rogue, uh, and then multi-class again into Monk. <laughs> <laughs> that classic, this classic is, triple dip. This, is a, this addresses several problems with Ooze Morph Shifter. <laughs> One is that uh, while you were in your, uh, you know, ooze form you get dr instead of ac so you can't wear armor because that would take away all your powers but you also don't get the shifter bonus to ac because that would be that would be too good ridiculous (laughs) so instead you get dr right and so i'm like i gotta get ac somehow um because i love dr6 slashing but uh, I need to live and oh by the way <laughs> yeah. did I mention that a lot of creatures do slashing damage like most of <laughs> so like everything pierces through my DR but I have it so it's good uh, until it's not and uh, so I needed monk for a little bit of AC boost Um shifter wasn't going to help if I leveled that and I wanted something else to mix in to see uh, what what would play to the advantages of the oozmorph shifter the ooze morph gets a lot of natural attacks, more than the shifter does, uh, and they also get a natural climb speed of 10 feet, so watch out. Um, the climb speed <laughs> plays very well into the vexing dart, vexing dodger archetype of the rogue, so that's why I decided to dip a lot, and by dip I mean I was mostly a rogue. Um, Tim, I want to give you a lot the of rogue.
1: credit for this dip because uh, you still play it better than another character right now.
5: Oh, really? (laughs) Good. Well, um, you know, the Vexing Dodger, uh, it does a little more than the standard rogue. You get all the sneak attack and stuff, but you can climb onto enemies that are larger than you. The morph Shifter gets Beast Form 1. So, you can be a small creature, and that means you can climb onto almost anything. And you have a 10-foot climb speed. So, you know, forget rolling climb um, I don't know if the rules work that way.
3: I feel like this is your TED Talk on why Oozmorph Shifter should be re-looked at and fixed. Because Probably. Because you keep addressing uh, I mean, all
0: the issues with it. Shifter as a and whole got mirada. So. He's, he's he's getting so fired up, he's taken off layers of clothing <laughs> yeah. during this discussion. He's he's practically oozing
1: out of <laughs> his clothes over there.
5: Did I mention that an Oozmorph Shifter can't wear armor?
1: <laughs>
0: oh, Speaking the of RP that, is on point. Usually. Yeah.
5: Uh, so yeah so that was the idea so I would I would climb onto enemies I would get a lot of natural attacks and I would debuff them after that because the vexing Dodger gets all sorts of cool things to like do dirty tricks and um they also get uh you can like forego your sneak attack damage with several different uh rogue um what are they called rogue talents yeah yeah and so you can you can be like armor piercer I'm gonna take I'm going to take three natural armor off because I had three sneak attack die when I, when I successfully hit a foe. Um, you may be comparing this to something like the witch, which just gets to do it automatically.
2: Uh,
5: <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't have to be natural armor. And you'd be correct, yeah. It's also less specific. I got a, I got a text message from Tim
0: during this run where he's like, you're playing a witch in Rise of the, Return of the Rune Lords, and uh, I can take their natural armor down by three. What the fuck am I doing?
5: (laughs) It's bad. And you have to spend like an action climbing. And then you actually have to hit them. And uh, the way multi-classing works in Pathfinder is a lot of the fractional bonuses kind of get smushed together and rounded down. And you end up with like a really low. Oh, yeah. What was your BAB
1: at the end of this? Yeah.
5: Actually, I don't have it written down here, but um, with all my bonuses, you know, I had a 22 dex. I was attacking at. Uh, like a plus 19 or something like that, which felt, it felt low. It did. Yeah, yeah. It, it should
1: have felt low because that was low, I think, comparatively to most of us for yeah. our first attack.
5: Yeah, so that was a bummer. But uh, I do have to say it was a ton of fun. Like the flavor is really cool. Uh, when I got to do things, like I really enjoyed doing those things. Um, and it's a challenge that you only get to do in this type of format where you get to play at a high level and you get to just do whatever you want. And um, yeah, I killed some undead too. Five. We're going to... Five. (laughs) Five, to be precise.
6: (laughs) Can we just bring up the fact that this Oosmorph Shifter was able to successfully grapple a couple dungeon bosses in this castle and work that effectively? Like, that is crazy. Yeah,
5: Yeah, that's true. I I had a really good CMD, or CMB, excuse me.
2: I think one of the highlights was the... So Chris is bringing up dungeon bosses. The premise of this adventure is you're given a poem, supposedly at the end of book four, and that ends up kind of riddling out. It forces you to explore the entire castle to go and kill these mini bosses and then fight the main one. One of the ones that I think Orgil really shone at was you climbed up a pillar and then jumped off to grapple this Demi Lich. And brought it back down to ground level, where Griffin's character could deal the final blow to it. Yeah, that was sweet. I still love it killed so it. Much. Still
5: counts as one. Yeah, definitely. I think I got half a. I we did. A, we did give
1: you half split. of that one because it was only fair. Because the only <laughs> at that level of uh, dragon disciple, I didn't have fly, so I couldn't get up to it either.
5: Yeah, and uh, John wasn't here, which made, made <laughs> oh,
2: which, which made yeah. us actually be able to kill stuff. Yeah, it yeah. was cool. <laughs> You're welcome. I think. Of the party, everybody did have their own thing that worked, and was it was a very unique thing. Griffin was great in one-on-one combat. Uh, Chris, your character was great. It, it was it was a bit swingy. There was kind of saber-suck with different spells, uh, but overall, just kind of static damage. Steve's character, while not always shining, was always there, and those auras made it. I think those auras saved the party several times just because you're given... I know it didn't stack with a a, um, Cloak of Resistance, but that still gave everybody another plus two or plus three to all their saves if they're hanging out near you.
0: The raw can't-touch-this-sexuality
1: saved this party. Fuck, I would have just
2: saved my money on
1: a uh, Cloak of Resistance (laughs) and
2: spent it somewhere else if I knew I was rolling out with you. Yeah, I think uh, I did manage to kill Chris's character... Um, and then I think Griff, you only saved. You might have met the DC. Yeah, or... I think I
1: met the DC on the same thing. Yeah, because
2: right. someone had cast Death Ward on you.
1: Yeah, that was exactly it. Chris saved my life and ended up dying himself. Yeah, that was what happened that combat. What can I say? I'm a team player. Thanks for being I did bring you back. So. so uh Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna
4: say that I feel like Chris had a lot of like really niche, really well used spells. Like that Death Ward. Plus, like he banished an entire like encounter at one point. The the giant
6: plant. I did do that. Yeah, we fought. We're, it was like a huge or large uh, plant, and I just went up to it and I, I booped it with either a banish or like a uh, plane shift.
2: It wasn't the plant; it was the elemental. Yeah, the elemental. Yes. Oh, it yeah, yeah, right yeah, past yeah. the plant. Yeah, yeah, you guys actually had a lot of trouble with the plant. Again, it wasn't undead; it wasn't evil. I know every a lot of people had holy and or undead bane. Yep. items. Yep. I was actually giving all the monsters more than max hp so if they had like most hit die are like okay 14 d8 plus something i was giving them 140 plus that something so whatever their hit die was that was times 10 so a die up max plus their bonus so and then typically the castle itself actually gave all the undead um a certain amount of buffs until you defeated some of the anchors so, with the anchors up, the castle is cursed by Zonkuthon, and until you defeat at least two of the anchors, then you get rest or you can't sleep well in the castle to regain your spells. Which you didn't decide to leave, and that was interesting. But um, at high level play, making a campfire was not really a big deal. You just use stone shape and boxed yourself in. <laughs> um, Classic.
3: It was an option to leave.
2: Yeah, yeah I, I I was unaware of not. that. Oh, <laughs> yeah, same. Um and well it, it, because this is kind of out of the blue, the campaign all kind of assumes that you can run this in addition to like the beginning parts of book 6, you can go back and forth. Oh,
1: that's interesting. Like, yeah. Like you can kind of you can bring in book 6 while they're dealing with Scarwall
2: yep. spell. Yeah, yep. that's, uh, we that's did, a cool concept. Though.
3: Had a massive party tent at one point and had a feast. That, that, was, awesome. feast that, was roof. Roof. that was a blast.
2: There were some pretty fun items in there. One of the ones that I think the party had the most fun with was a greater set of prayer beads, which I had no idea was so powerful, but it's written in the book and you got it. Not only did it bring Chris's character back to life, it also allowed um, another party member to join for a day. And his name was Plunto. Um, uh, he is also Chris's brainchild.
6: Yeah. Before we get to him, do we want to like go into the actual like the Demilich fight that led to him coming back? Because I feel like the my death kind of like preempts all
1: this. Yeah, I had no idea this was coming when I spent the fucking prayer bead to bring you
2: back. i <laughs> have just left you dead. So you guys did a a big Leroy Jenkins where you went straight through. So the castle set up where you start at one end and you guys went straight through the ground floor into the courtyard and then just kept going, which after you got past a plant, then you just kept going and got past this wall. And then they're not supposed to go there yet. (laughs) Welcome stone shape. A, welcome to
3: a group of players who said, level 13, what up?
2: Yeah. Also welcome to the high
1: level combat. That's <laughs> how it goes. High level castle. This is just a set of things I can stone shape.
4: And I feel like Eric as a GM just does a really good job of like not even hinting that like you're just fucking blowing for your fucking That's he's not like, true. Oh. He said
3: it. He was like, like what like, well, are you
2: doing? Well no, he's like, oh, you want to do that? Alright. Yeah, go ahead, try it. Alright. Like so, the adventure is like, hey, they shouldn't get to the Donjon until after they've hit 14th level. And this was like session three, maybe? Yeah, it was two or three. So, um, one of the things that with the book, I wish it was a little better well written. Because there's only like four maps in the entire book. So, they're massive maps. We scrolled around on the wonderful setup we have here. But the map is about maybe 10 or 15 pages in the book away from the encounter. That encounter from the uh, plant has the archers, which did come arrow down at you afterwards after Haley's bombs exploded. What those archers are supposed to do is wake up the dragon. Oh, fuck. So it should have been a massive rolling encounter. That would have been horrible. About four or five different zones. And that should have actually kind of scared you away and maybe back into the castle. But again, just the way things are written... I wish there was a better linking between how encounters are made. I guarantee you would
1: have got one of us with the dragon at that level after that fucking plant fight. Yeah, no doubt you would have had probably at least a two PK.
2: So the Demilich fight was the second pillar you guys ran into, and the there's again there's the four pillars that kind of beef up and provide stat buff to the. And boss and you ran into him right after your first night's rest so you're coming downstairs to this area you shouldn't be at yet and it was I think one of the bigger challenges it was the first real magical challenge you guys ran into you had some trouble with the plant which was kind of a big non-evil thing that grappled and that was exciting to see because it had a big reach and then Just this thing throwing spells at you. A lot of savers suck. Um, And it had some pretty sweet abilities. I mean, the Whale of the Banshee and the, um, I think it was Steel Soul or something like along those lines that it's just, hey, you die. Trap Soul, I think, right? Trap trap the Soul. Yes. Dead.
5: Yeah, so for those of you that have not played against a Demi Lich, this is a creature that's like basically a, the, the Lich has gone on to do something else, and this is the pure necromantic evil left behind in the form of a skull that tries to trap souls in gems that it then eats. Does that
2: sound right? That is right, and it had an interesting mechanic on how it interacted with the castle because the way the castle is under its curse, if you die there... Your, your soul gets sucked into the castle. So not only in order to free Chris's character, you had to get his soul out of the gem of the Demi Lich, you then had to make another save to break it free from the castle. And that was a, like a second dispel magic that only lasted for a round. So you really had to kind of coordinate how the resurrection would have worked. So that was really exciting. Uh, and you guys had to cut, figure out how to find a resurrection? I don't think anybody had resurrection nope. except for Chris's character. Yeah, <laughs> the, the cleric had resurrection. Yeah. So you killed the cleric. Of course. Of In course. one of the rooms you hadn't explored yet, there was actually a scroll of temporary resurrection, but you didn't know that. So how did you guys find a way to bring Chris back? Prayer
6: beads. Well, let me tell you. In I think the exact same cathedral-ish room that we defeated the demi-lich after my character perished, we found a set of greater prayer beads and we in this in this talk this discussion about how we were going to bring my character back because we didn't have any options ourselves we were looking at the greater prayer beads and found out that you are able to summon one of the beads summons a uh, celestial creature up to i think cr 16 or 17
2: i think it's planar ally yeah, it planar, planar ally
6: summon planar ally correct and so the one that we chose was a planetar angel, which we named Plunto, just to give you a brief description of this guy. Muscular, bald, and tall, this humanoid creature has emerald skin and two pairs of shining white wings. Um, also notably, it has prepared two instances of Regenerate, which is just what we needed to bring the dust pile of my character back into existence.
4: I didn't know Plunto was bald, and this changes, like, a lot of how I remember everything.
1: <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I didn't know been. he was entirely emerald, either. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, right. I did not picture emerald. I pictured him as a regular angel, not, uh... Yeah, i might not have read that off,
6: but that's the uh, rules as written description. Let, let me just give you a hint about how this character that we then had for an entire day carried us through this session. <laughs>
5: several, this guy, several sessions.
6: Yes, yeah, CR-16... Uh, so yeah, caster level there plus three holy great sword, with a disgusting to hit that I won't mention. You can look it up later. A whole bunch of at will spells including lesser restoration, remove curse, remove disease, all that shit. Um, a whole bunch of three times and one times per day stuff. Had yeah you know, two instances regenerate like I mentioned. A whole bunch of Banished stuff for all the evil stuff we encountered. Um, but something that was like really helpful to us too is. Its skills like there was a lot of knowledge religion stuff in this castle and this this plunto character was sporting a plus 26 knowledge (laughs) religion this boy basically auto succeeded all of the checks that we had to make in that day that we had him
2: can we go around the table what was everybody else's knowledge religion in a campaign that was going to be about undead
6: Nolomir had a plus nine but that's just because he was a cleric and had no skills whatsoever
3: why the fuck do I need religion? I'm I'm a scientist.
2: Likewise, but shifter, <laughs> no religion. How about the the ranger with a favorite enemy undead?
3: Uh, yeah, it's a
4: great question, Eric. Initially, none, oh, no. zero, and then I did put my very li- well. I had a plus one int, so I did have some skill points to spend, but uh, I had a good old plus three so i could roll just so
5: i can roll <laughs> but you hate them that's what's important is you hate yeah. them
4: like, that's the thing i hate. I, don't, is I, don't, bliss. I don't I don't need to know anything beyond how to put an arrow in them yeah
0: that's essentially it that's all there is i uh as a paladin of Day, i had a uh, no knowledge ranks
2: no. <laughs> <in anything. laughs>
0: that that's So amazing. i was devoted to a god had no idea
4: why Blind devotion is the purest devotion. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> so I, I built for call thinking that the character with high intelligence or the cleric or the paladin or the ranger who fucking hates undead might have a single fucking rank <laughs> in no religion. So I hit a plus nine. <laughs>
3: I have high intelligence, but it wasn't even on,
1: like... With no intelligence,
0: for my part. All right, well, well listen. It wasn't
2: one of my skills.
0: Haley built her character when she was sick. I built my character when I was almost dying. I built mine on the plane ride to PaizoCon.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that... You were almost dead. I had, like, like is there a Zuru Paladin a template I could use, and I was like, don't use the pre-chant. <laughs> don't was, do
0: it. I was... I was... I was worried about my health.
6: Speaking of health, one last aside about Plunto. This boy had regeneration 10. So immediately after a combat, we could just turn to him and like, You good, Plunto? And he, uh, uh, Yes, I'm good. I'm fine.
0: Plunto shaved conservatively a month off this run. For sure. Yeah, easy. Yeah. He, he probably shaved a lot because
5: he was bald. <laughs> He's
1: shaving <laughs> every five minutes. That's, that
4: is
2: fair. After
5: every combat, naturally hairless. His skin is made of emerald. Oh,
2: uh, uh, yeah! You need a really sharp razor for that. <laughs> All right,
0: so we we did this demi-lich encounter. We had Plunto. We banged through the rest of the pillars. We fought the big bad, and Eric wasn't content with just having us go against this dungeon. There was one final fight that he wanted to throw at our party, and I want him to talk about it a little bit.
2: So I will preface this as knowing that the end boss I knew would be a piece of cake for you guys.
1: Why? Uh, Because we killed it a couple times beforehand?
2: No, no, not the the chain sword. The one next to the sword is actually um, basically a, a cursed thrall. I literally put two of them there and then doubled the health and you killed it in five rounds without John there. Haley was dealing over 100 points of damage every round because it's our gargantuan creature with a touch AC of 5. So you guys went through 500 hit points, and I did kind of flavor it as a combined hit point pool just because, okay, it's not fair to fight two of these. I just wanted a little bit more action economy. So they had 500 points, joined between them, and you went through it in five rounds. Well, I remember you
1: dealing... Over a hundred points of damage to a character. It's just you had several characters that had heal. Yes, that were just like boop, hundred fifty points of health
2: right now. Yeah, I mean it, it was hitting back, but again, with your thirty point buy, you were making those saves. It was a DC twenty five save, or you'd take pain points, which would stag, or which would. I don't think it would... It might have staggered you or given us a small debuff for a couple rounds. Yeah. But you always made that save, mostly because of Steve's aura. You're welcome. So, on the way out of the castle, I designed a character using roughly the same point rules I gave you guys. 30 point buy. I cheated a little bit on the item, percentage-wise. And I made Taicho the anime chicken. He was a Tengu with a permanent reduced person.
5: Just to screw me over, I'm convinced.
2: No, uh, so it was for John. (laughs) It it was specifically to kill John's character.
5: But the small size was so I couldn't climb it.
2: That also was a benefit. Yes. So So I I see my goal designing this character was to try to go 10 rounds with one character, and it did not succeed. But I did manage to have somebody with eight attacks of opportunity that was virtually immune to ranged attacks. But because we were playing in a castle with very indoor spaces, you guys never really used area of effect spells throughout. I mean, you could mostly target or small cones. But so I didn't take that into account. And so you guys, especially Haley with her various bomb tricks, again, thwarted me on a final boss. And uh, Griffin pulled out a breath weapon with the Dragon Disciple. Dragon Disciple, baby. Uh, it was very fun. I think I can find a way to post the link to you guys on the um, final character sheet for this thing. But it had a plus 35 to attack. And then with power attack, it was four attacks at a plus 30 to start, dealing 1d6 or 1d8 plus 27 if it was power attack. And I was, I was nice, and I probably shouldn't have been. I had gave him a Bastard Swords instead of a Falcata. Which would have had an X3 crit, but. Did you
5: calculate the CR for that?
2: Uh, it's a really hard to do. The CR for a PC style character is normally plus one if you give it the PC point buy. So I did a plus two on that. Okay. And then if you give it character wealth, it's another plus one. So I figured it was roughly a CR 19. Against... Against CR... Level level, uh, Yeah, against level 15 characters. So I I figured it would probably be a lot tougher, but uh, you found his weakness, which was don't attack him directly, just make everything explode around him. Well, his weakness was don't double his HP pool. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the thing, where you realize that with PCs, they're... Their weakness is it's a small amount of health, but they have the action economy to, to benefit them. I mean, most of the enemies you're fighting had 200, 300 health. He had 164 because, again, I, I rolled him just like you guys did. But, uh, I mean, even with decent saves, I mean, most of his saves were 13, 14. So uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun to make character to kind of see what you can do. I'd never built a fighter before, so full bab was fun. Found a, fun, a couple of fun feats, but you guys uh, proved that you are the masters of uh, masters of Scarwall. Yes, we did,
0: and I'm sure this party, um, somewhere in our imaginations, is going off to cleanse other castles, take down other pillars, um,
1: summon other summon other angels.
5: <laughs> well, it's great because in our Return of the Rune Lord games uh, or game, excuse me. They, they're going to come back. and Because uh, Curse of the Crimson Throne is, is canon in in all of our adventures.
1: And guess That's what? Good. That Return of the Rune Lords campaign? Canon and carrying crown. That's right. <laughs> for you listeners at home who
0: care about our off-podcast <laughs> games, this is yeah our off-podcast continuity with the rest of the games we play. You guys are going to go wild for this. <laughs> anyway, Guys, I had a whole bunch of fun playing Scarwall. It really uh, allowed myself and I, I think the rest of the folks at the table to flex muscles that we weren't uh, used to flexing, play characters at a high level that we're not used to. But more importantly, it brought us closer together as friends, and that's what this is all about. So, with that in mind, let's answer some of our friends listener questions. Yay. Alright, this first one comes from our good buddy Alex Giordano. He's asking, if you could write an AP, what would the theme be? And what would be the plot of each book? Alex, we're not going to do that. There's seven people around the table. We're not going through six books. Oh, I have a good one for that. Don't do all six. I won't do all six. All right, well then, don't do all six. Um, He says, example, Carrying Crown is obviously gothic horror, with each book tackling a different classic horror motif, whereas Giant Slayer is about giants and each book is about a different giant. That's about as much detail as I want to go into this, right? With your answers, I don't need to hear all six books, but let's do it. So... It sounds like you've got something ready to go, Griff.
1: I do, and I'm uh, relatively inspired by some of our earlier, I think, one zone of truth or two zone of truth during the Halloween era uh, questions that we got. And I think a serial killer AP would be really fun, but the way I would want to flavor it is that I would, instead of it being one serial killer being the big bad, because fuck that, that's way too easy it's a cult that is relatively unknown that all goes by like the same name. And initiation to the cult is being basically they, to make it less magically um, figure outable, they flesh to stone you, stone shape you in the image of their leader, and then stone to flesh you. And if you survive that, you become a member of this cult, the cult of Stan or whatever it is, that uh, has these people that have the aspects of all of the kind of greatest serial killers that we think about in movies and that kind of thing. And they're kind of headed up by a Hannibal Lecter-esque character, somebody incredibly intelligent. So and I'm not going to go through all of the books, but like after book two, the party thinks that they're chasing this singular serial killer and they end up killing one of the members of this cult and realizing that the murders continue and they continue at a larger scale and uh, things are getting out of hand and it can't have possibly been this person what's going on and it turns out that it's this larger cult that has all kind of made themselves and their reputation off of one person so the entire world basically thinks this one person is capable of all of that stuff But in reality, it's the larger cult.
2: I think that'd be really interesting, especially because it's... I very rarely see urban campaigns. I know there's... I mean, back in the 3-5 days, there was the one-city super dungeon where you could do, like, 1-20 to and never leave the city. But it'd be really interesting to see kind of how that interacts. I know we were talking about... um, I think your PFS character is a vigilante... It'll be interesting to see some of those more social characters get a chance to shine. Or an occultist that touches objects.
1: (laughs) Oh, geez. Good thing they all look the same. Well, Eric,
2: tell us about your your campaign you'd want to make. So, and I think I answered this right away when I got asked, because I didn't think I'd have the chance to answer it on air. But I'd love to run a game based on the Game Boy series Golden Sun which is a kind of a Final Fantasy-style game. You get these characters, and there's these four lighthouses that get lit, and you're basically fighting against these kind of radicals who are trying to either extinguish the beacons or light the beacons, depending on which game you're playing. And it, you also... Everyone gets various powers based around the elementals. So it'd be interesting you could do like four... Each lighthouse could get its own kind of story, and... Players get the, maybe a scaling magical item, and depending on how you combine elements, you can get various magical powers in addition to your regular class. So I think that'd be pretty fun to do.
0: Yeah, that's cool as hell. How about you, John?
4: So I'm lucky in the fact that I know three very good GMs. <laughs> well, we've uh, we've tried. I, I have ha- tried my hand very briefly at GMing, and I'm very very bad at it. But I I really do second what Eric kind of said. How like the whole class with the vigilante and everything, vigilante, every, and everything you uh you said about like social encounters and how there's not many campaigns. A lot of times cities are hubs in campaigns, but I would love to see one that's like focused within a city small kind of close quarters like cramped environments or things like that i think there's a lot there that you could explore and like that sounds very cool to me
2: maybe like a castle full of undead
1: maybe i guess we're all playing council of thieves (laughs) sounds
0: like it uh speaking about someone who is uh likely a thief chris (laughs) (laughs) true Thank you, thank you.
1: (laughs) You're stealing Bird Points Inc. in intellectual property.
6: Yeah, I am. I'm stealing IP. Um, I want to preface this by saying that I think Pathfind or Pat is an amazing AP company. Like the stuff they generate is amazing. But I've been reading a lot of Lovecraft lately, and so I think that informs what I would like to see in a cool in like a a strange aeons Lovecraft. Inspired entire AP, so I know nothing about that yet. I'm, I, I try to save I think myself you would love from the Yeah, what I think I would I would love to see is uh, like a six book, two part type AP, where the first three books are. Um, There is some sort of cosmic horror in what we know, you know, in our, like, common pathfinder, like the inner sea region. Sure. That is a slow burn. You know, you've got some unsettling events happening and you're slowly working up to, you know, dealing with connected events to this one, one, like, eldritch or, you know, otherworldly horror that you solve. And then at the end of book three, you think you've solved it and everything. But it turns out that all of the events that you've been dealing with, and the choices that the party makes, have had these magnified ramifications on this other entire continent, separate from what is normally takes place in, you know, one of the other continents that they haven't fully developed yet, outside of the Inner Sea. Yes. Yeah. And so, the next three books would be them getting word about something. Otherworldly happening there and them journeying to it, and really having this sort of sandbox continent that no one's really fleshed out yet that they can have this horrible, like magnified otherworldly horror manifest that they have to deal with, and just you know, really give a a writing team room to develop that sort of cosmic horror on on a completely different scale that doesn't have a lot of effect on Galarian as we know it. Sure,
0: yeah. I love the sound of that, man. sounds super creepy. Yeah, very Strange Aeons, but with a little bit more uh,
1: explore parts of the Glarian that have not been explored with traditional APs before. Yeah, I haven't really read through Strange Aeons, so I don't really know how the build is for that. I just know it's touted as the HP Lovecraft. um, I'd be really, i know nothing about it. I'd be really interested in in hearing about that or reading about it. Oh, GCP's playing Yeah. All right, uh, Haley,
0: what you come up with?
3: Yeah, so I would want to uh, create an an AP based upon First World and the Eldest. I think that they're an absolutely fascinating group. It is a group of nine who are basically the Divine fay, right? So in that, they're highly, highly magical, absolutely obscene, obscene powers. Um, with that in mind, I think a very fascinating AP would be bouncing back and forth between um, the first world and uh, the material plane going through those different like where I don't know kind of they, they describe the first world as um, there's like these portals and it, they describe that as first world was painted and then over top of it a better painting um, was put on place and where those portals are or those gaps are or where the, the paint is thin right that's kind of how they describe it so I think it'd be fascinating to follow a group of adventurers who are basically contracted by the fae to stop a group of what are basically immune to magic assassins, who are trying to take out the eldest and take over the first world to um, as a whole, and like they're kind of like this group of anti-magic who plan to. Uh, try to take out the eldest, which is obviously sounds like an impossible feat, but there would have to be some, some crazy shit going on. And there's nine of them, so I think you could kind of work that into a six book feature pretty well, as well as a very interesting and different item mix that you'd have to have in order to have anti magic versus full on, most things are horror, like super, super magic, super high fantasy. I think it'd be interesting to take that and and uh how does someone who, like fight against extremely anti-magic people who are out to destroy what are the oldest of all beings
1: the opposite of that sounds very like bleach or something like where you're you're just taking on these like this trial of the nine basically like if you were on the enemy's side for that yeah which is kind of cool yeah
0: uh, as soon as this question got posted in our discord a lot of people were, we're saying First World or Fae, and I'm I'm shocked that something hasn't happened and, and Venture Path hasn't touched on that, and I think that would be a great take on it There's been, people want it.
3: There's been a couple things here and there that have hit First World, but I don't think there's been anything that's been full-on like six books actually in and out.
2: Yeah. Book six of Kingmaker does touch on it a little bit, kind of as those thin paint areas, but I don't think anything actually goes there.
3: Which is yeah. crazy, because there's full-on cities there. Yeah. Sorry, it boggles my <laughs> freaking mind that there's nothing there.
1: Well, you could say that about almost any plane. It's like, why isn't there another campaign in the Shadow Plane? Why isn't there a campaign in, you know, the Plane of Positive Energy? It's like, well, because the, the prerequisites for your characters to be there are generally pretty high. I think the first world is maybe the only one where you don't really need a prereq to get there. It's not like you're going to die from the damage that the plane itself causes to you.
3: And I think that's why the first world is more appealing, because there isn't some super special magical thing that you have to do to get there. You just have to find those spots where the paint's thin.
0: And, and I think it would be a lot of fun to play in a situation like that. To me, first world has always been very like Alice in Wonderland-y, and I think the... That would translate really well to uh, a group that has a really descriptive GM that can really set you in that mindset of, like, shit doesn't, like, look right around you. And it's it's cool. Very merry on birthday to you. All right. So if there's ever a first world uh, campaign, we're never going to play it because Griffin's <laughs> just going to bombard us with voices like that. Did I hear a gill slip What's playing the Mad Hatter? <laughs> Um, I'm I'm gonna go ahead and, and go next because Tim's pretty creative and I want him to close this one up. Um, he's giving me a face. Uh, <laughs> he didn't think of anything. Yeah, this is gonna be a real letdown. We'll done but, one line. So the the campaign I would want to do would be to wrap up first edition. So I know the last first edition uh, campaign was Tyrant's Grass, Big Whist. Uh, you know what? I'm not even gonna say anything about it. Um, but. I think it would be cool to have like an, an Avengers Endgame s campaign where you bring back somehow the writers bring back Kartsog from the original Rise of the Rune Lords transmutation time magic um, something happens I mean I haven't really thought it out but your characters basically have to go back through time. And hit some of the big major plot points from previous APs. So you stop in and steal an item from Queen Iliosa from Curse of the Crimson Throne. You stop in during the giant naval encounter at the end of uh, Skull and Shackles. You stop in and steal something from Baba Yaga. And you have to go through the history of Paizo APs and play this background role to make sure that history... Uh, stays
1: intact and Kartsog can't get back and destroy everything. Can you imagine how cool that would be? A book one through six, like, level 20 campaign doing that? Yes. Like, just, hey, you want high-level play? Here's six books of high-level play. You're hitting all the highlights of our Pathfinder adventures thus far as we we kind of sunset the first edition. Mm -hmm. Like, hit 20th level... Boost everything that isn't a twentieth level Ender up to a twentieth level of combat, and just let your players loose. That'd be really fun,
0: especially if you've been, you know, unlike us, if you've like been with the system since day one or year one or whatever, and you get to hit the highlights, like really, like take you down this path of nostalgia. And I think it would lead your your party and your GM to take you in places where. Um, you can reintroduce old NPCs and fan f- or like player favorite party members and stuff come back and interact with the new party. I think it would be fun. It would be tough and it would be, um, a you know, it would be catered to a specific type of party right. that plays. It would be catered
1: to the people that have played Pathfinder APs from the beginning,
0: which I think is cool what they were hoping. Yeah, I think it'd be cool as hell. That's my idea.
2: I think that'd be fantastic yeah, that'd if awesome. you could. I'll use that to explain some of the Deus Ex Machina that you see in adventure paths. Yes, like oh hey, my god, that'd be so how cool. Why it's very convenient that this item just happened to be there when we needed it, or that this person knew about such something that turned the tide of this, or this army just happened to show up when we needed it to to save the day. I've found that running something that's very parallel timeliney
1: and trying to bring it together. I mean, it'd be a hell of a feat for the writers, but I, I think if anyone could do a Paizo, could do that justice, and it'd be really fun.
0: So that was kind of what I came up with. I got really excited about it. Um, oh, that's super cool. Thank you.
5: Uh, Tim, what you got for us? Well, uh, so I do, I do want to say that for those of you wishing to scratch that itch, Return of the Rune Lords is a great AP for you because uh, there are a lot of moments, I would say, it's it's not to that extent, but I would say there are a lot of moments where you can bring in NPCs from other APs. You can bring in story elements. You can change, basically the whole uh, the whole adventure path to form to the other adventure press that you have had the chance to play through. So that's a really fun part of that AP. But I did uh, bring my own story to, to tell over six books, which I, I think is something that I would rather put in Starfinder rather than Pathfinder. Oh, yeah, dude. Right. Yeah. I love it. Sustained. Starfinder's
1: a wide open field right yep. now. Yep. You've got a ton of options. I'll allow it.
5: So this is going to be uh, a start type a survival game. You, you crash on a planet um, that is... and the, the vision I had for it is that you would start on a prison ship, as prisoners, so you, each of these characters have a background that doesn't necessarily mesh with each other, and you're crashing on a planet where you have to survive together, um, which can be difficult and I think interesting for role playing purposes. And then um, what you find out is the pro- the planet has a certain issue that is going to be pretty universal throughout the AP, but you may not know what that is yet until you start to uncover it as you move on. And the survival game turns into, uh, after you grow to some power, you're not going to need to survive anymore. You're going to need to gain power in whatever planet you're starting on. And so it sort of morphs into a Kingmaker campaign where you are building up your strength before you hit the last couple of books where you are starting to delve into the underlying issues with the entire planet. And I was inspired by uh, the graphic novels, John Prophet, where Um, the planet itself is alive and, uh, you're dealing with something on a cosmic scale that is, uh, degrading and dying. And so you have to suddenly become from a person that is just vying for power among very different fashion factions among the planet. You're now someone who is trying to save the world that you've become so attached to over the last like four books or however that timeline plays out. I think that would be fun. Uh, As a campaign,
1: I've always thought of the start of what you just said, uh, like the prison moon kind of thing, but as a um, as a segue to a death race. So I'm clearly not, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Like you spend a year building your uh, your cart for a death race that you then compete against other prisoners and get off the planet. Uh, (laughs) That was great. That that was my book one, but uh, I I like your concept a little bit better for its (laughs) scope, guys. I don't know if we've said this before in the Zone of Truth, but I think we should go a little long. I think with seven people, it seems like we should answer some of these, and we got a lot of good answers coming. Well, we only have two questions left. Yeah, but, but yeah. I think I think we're still going to end yes, up going
0: long. We're going we're gonna to hit them all. We're going to go long. Um, everyone's going to have a chance to speak, and we're going to drag this out as long as we can. So As long as we can. As long as possible. All right. So our next question comes from, um, I hope I'm pronouncing this correct, Ratha, R-H-A-T-H-A. I think that's right. Um, This question's a little bit longer. What have been your experiences with puzzles and APs? I can think of one in particular I started to play through. We ran into a puzzle section and sat there spinning our wheels for an hour, getting absolutely nowhere. Hints were very minor. No one could roll anything on an int check. And it, was hard, and it was a hard wall to progressing. On top of that, it was a type of puzzle I'd seen before, but couldn't for the life of me remember, and I ended up getting incredibly frustrated once we finally got through it. As someone who hopes a GM down the road, I'd love some advice on them. I'm going to come out straight out of the gate and say, I haven't faced a whole lot of puzzles in APs, and really the only one I could think of offhand was a puzzle that was kind of supposed to be in one of our evil interludes that Brooks broke through. Yeah, he did
1: break that puzzle.
0: Yeah, so I don't have a lot, a whole lot of experience out there, but I am sitting in the room with a lot of creative people and a lot of GMs. What
4: do you mean when you say Brooks broke the puzzle? Well, listen to the show, John. Yeah, he
1: uh, he like stone shaped his way through uh, it.
5: Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, a that's a time. classic
4: break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We did that in Scarwall as well with uh with the magically locked doors.
2: Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird that a lead magically sealed door just doesn't have a defense against. Well, it was lead sealed, like, through the cracks. But if you just go around and take the 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 doorframe out of the door, it goes through. But Scarwall itself did have uh, a poem that, again, was kind of leading you to these spirit anchors. And other than just kind of your interpretations of, I mean, something along the lines of In kennel's grime, third bides its time. Okay, well, we got to find the kennel. So just basic wordplay. You eventually could have stumbled upon it. So it wasn't too big of an issue other than really trying to find the last one when you had to go up into the castle and there were kind of three options. So more of just a a time of where to go next versus we can't progress unless we solve this. And I
1: think that's good puzzle design. I think good puzzle design is that you could kind of happen your way across some of the stuff if you don't sit down and think about the puzzle and figure out, okay, here's the four places we need to go that we can do this the most efficiently by doing this. I I, I also think, like,
0: puzzle-making for your PCs, I think you need to read your party. If you've got a lot of people that want to, like, murder hobo slash, and bang, give them something super basic that they can just, like, kind of, like intelligently, like, crush their way through without, like, really thinking about it. and Like, oh, yeah, okay, this is the not beat up part of the game. But if you've got, like, a party of Emily's, just, like, high-functioning people that like details and want to solve problems, like, I-, I don't think that you would have a problem with a party of Emily's, like, really challenging them on something legitimately challenging.
3: But I think... In general, when it comes to GMing a puzzle-based, uh, I don't know, mini game, etc., something with a puzzle, you want to make sure that you have unlock in your back pocket and out. Let's say they're super not getting it. The last thing you want is for your entire table to feel absolutely fucking miserable. Yeah. What you want is to give them an out. Maybe that is in, there's a, you're in a castle, an old castle, let's say, like Scarwall. You're in an old castle, you go through a puzzle and you're super not getting it. Have in your back pocket as a GM, there's a ghost in the wall that starts to whisper key phrases. There's, you have to understand your players as well. And I think that's the most important part because it sounds like you went through a super frustrating puzzle with no hints. And that's where I think as a GM, it's good to keep things in your back pocket that you can pull out to give your players hint even if they're not written in
6: yeah yeah i definitely agree with that like i so i don't have a lot of gm experience i've only done a one shot but for puzzles my like i'm postulating this like you have an ap that has a written in puzzle that you really don't want to change or something you want to have the basics of the puzzle be left in and solved by the party um so my first the first thing that i would think of is Um, I don't want my players to feel frustrated or stupid or something and have them sit there for hours in a session trying to figure this out so if I could find a way to time it so I'm ending the session maybe the last half hour 20 minutes is them getting introduced to the puzzle and figuring out so that maybe they have a week to think about it or you know try to think it through uh, you know without the pressure of time being on them and then maybe come back next session to solve it that would be cool but other than that like like you were saying Haley um, you you want to give them a way out so my like i don't know i I might default to having them roll intelligence or wisdom checks and maybe i don't want it to be a cakewalk that they immediately solve the puzzle but i want them to be able to it it, it's it's a very uh, good feeling to work something out for yourself so i'd love to piecemeal them like small hints through intelligence or wisdom checks to help them slowly get the keys they need to set them up to solve
3: it And I think if if intelligence and wisdom checks just, like, aren't—isn't the party's, like, thing at all, like, let's say you don't have any intelligence and wisdom, it's, like, small hints, like, let's say this trap or puzzle or whatever, somewhat activated by water— Let's have your barbarian sweat and, like, some of the, like, literally the sweat from the barbarian drops down on the puzzle and, like, that's a small hint. Without having to force the, the, let's say you have a no intelligence and no wisdom. It's rare, but it happens. You have to have, again, those, like, small, small outs.
2: So, building on kind of what both of you said, I've heard somewhere, I have no idea where I heard it, but it was a save versus stupid where if you're going to give them extra information that they probably shouldn't have or should have figured out already, make them pay a price for it. Maybe have an extra encounter. That's a bit more difficult of maybe a summoned water elemental to go with that uh, example of the sweater. You need to have something activated by that or the character or a journal that just happens to have maybe a, cipher or something to help them figure it out is in their pocket, but they're hard to beat or heck just this trap sets off a charge that dislodges something in the wall. They couldn't make the perception check. So something else, but make them pay a price to get there, but to keep things moving.
5: I think, uh, that hits on a lot of the the points that I was going to make about puzzles as a GM. I think, uh, we alluded to this earlier. I think the slow drip of information is is important because anything your PCs do, you want them to progress at some point. So um, I think the slow drip makes it feel like the PCs are making progress without being frustrated. Uh, and then to your point, Eric, I think that um, you're going to want to sort of... I lost my train of thought entirely.
0: Who's empathy?
5: You're gonna want to use who's <laughs> empathy. But yeah, so I think I think you're gonna want you're you're gonna want to slow drip information as well as possible to the PCs so they feel like they're progressing. And then essentially you're going to want to challenge the PCs in a way that maybe fits their character themselves. You need to know the party. You also want to um, make sure that. You're 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 getting things across clearly because oftentimes as a GM, you have uh Al-Trebek vision where you just you you have the answer in front of you, and you know that because of this, you you think these hints are very clear. But what really ends up happening is that your PCs are clueless, and you feel like they're being really stupid. When in reality, because you don't have that 2020 vision of being a GM. They're 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 struggling. So, um, we another thing you can do to encourage that slow drip of information is to make sure that when you're reading ahead, you know how the PCs are going to react to the puzzle. Uh, that's coming up so um for example if you have a magical item that is important to the puzzle remind your pcs that that is important and remind your pcs of what uh sort of things are involved there was a particular moment in rise of the Rune Lords. spoiler for that ap i hope that you know if you've if you're listening to this you probably just got spoiled for curse of the crimson throne yeah but here's you're not another not gonna be one. Able to play
1: the first two baby uh, yeah put the
5: Put put the disclaimer up front. Throwing yeah, rain of winter. You did. So uh, <laughs> there's a moment where you get a particularly powerful magical item, and you're supposed to use this in the next book to basically go into Rune Lord Karthog's, like demi plane. And there's like this big glowing orb. And I remember my players being like not understanding that they were supposed to use these these items to do that. Is because they kind of forgot about it after some time, and instead they got fixated on this one statue in the other room of Rune Lord Kartzog, and he was like holding up a magnifying or something like that. And magnifying glass, excuse me. And the point of that statue was was a good one. They were trying to show off the the some story elements, but I focused on that, and then they got to the next room, and they're like, "The statue must have something to do with this," and it doesn't at all. But uh, my players were like really confused, and um, it, it, it was a moment for me. I was like, "Okay, I need to make sure that I'm a little more clear on some things that I thought were obvious," uh, and I and I and I need to, and I need to make sure that the red herrings are fun and not frustrating. That you know they they may be having fun with this for a while, but I need an out to say. By the way, this was a red herring. Please stop focusing on this part of
0: it. You <laughs> Your players sound <laughs> real fucking stupid. Yeah, we yeah. fucking idiot yeah. in that group.
5: One of them was like Strapple? Someone Steve? No, that can't mm. be right. I was, uh, I was in the other uh, campaign. Steve
1: Grapple. Oh. He was a monk build. Listen. Loved to grapple. Yeah. Listen,
0: you have a campaign where one of the uh, prime magical items is a magic dildo.
5: <laughs> True how could you forget about the magic dildo that was exactly what i'm talking about i know that's what we're talking about (laughs) yeah so uh you know slow drip of information um hint things early on and uh, and make the red herrings fun and you know i think i think you'll be fine for those puzzles
1: yeah i totally agree with you tim on the slow drip of information uh My biggest hang-up with running puzzles, and maybe it's... I've done it before, but maybe it's why I don't like to do it as much, is that I feel like a puzzle is a thought exercise for the players, more so than for their characters. And so when I run a puzzle, it's not, hey, you're a barbarian, you can't participate. It's, hey, if you think of the answer of this and you think you have this right I want you to role play how your barbarian would stumble into this I don't like to do the intelligence checks and wisdom checks and whatever unless they're truly struggling it's more of a hey I really want everyone at the table to be playing this puzzle I don't want you to be taken out of the puzzle because you're a low int character you're a low wisdom character whatever you are Puzzles are meant to be a thought experiment for players. They're not meant to be, in my opinion, something that is insurmountable for a character that has low intelligence. Because I mean, by God, if you've had your your smartest, best puzzly person play a barbarian, then you're fucked, right? And that's no fun. So I think I think the magic happens when you when you do a puzzle and a puzzle is solved by your barbarian and it's up to your really smart player that's playing a barbarian to think about how that might actually happen, how that barbarian might actually stumble into the answer it is more fun to me than kind of walling it off with with intelligence and wisdom checks. I'd rather just give a hint uh, because if I'm giving him an intelligence or wisdom check, I'm clearly throwing a lifeline for myself out there. That's like, hey, I really want this to continue going forward. At the end of the day, I don't really give a fuck what you rolled on the check.
5: I just want you to succeed and continue this story. And I think part of that requires you as a GM to be creative with how you're giving the hints. It's uh, kind of what Haley suggested about dripping sweat or something like that on the trap, where you need to actually... uh, what, whatever they do, it needs to be productive. It feels bad to to have them try something and you get no information afterwards. So I will give some GM advice in
1: the opposite direction though. If your clue or or your your neat little puzzle gets um, overcome by the party through magical means or whatever, don't give up there. I mean, bring the consequences to other parts of what you're doing. It's very easy to, uh, much as they say when you're GMing and, and say you were doing a homebrew campaign and somebody wanted to go west when you wanted them to go east and you had prepared east, just bring that to west. The same thought process applies with one of these traps. Bring something into another room that is the same trap or the same hurdle but in a different room.
3: Absolutely. Punish your players for finding creative ways to get around the traps. I agree wholeheartedly. What? Should we go to the next one?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Ratha, however you want to do this for your future players, keep it sweaty. Uh, Keep it sweaty, apparently. And and just like a uh, dumbass barbarian stumbling into the solution to a trap, we're going to stumble into this third question. So this comes from our really good friend Rio. We bumped into her at Brewfest. She's just one of the best people. What classes are you most excited to see in 2E and Y? There's a very specific reason I threw this particular question as our last one because what we are doing today is having a little double header. We are recording Zone of Truth this group and then we are going to run into the second session of our Fall of Plague Stone off podcast run. We had a lot of fun the first time and I am stoked to keep going. You guys took it a little sillier
1: than I thought you might, but I'll roll with those punches. And uh Griff, I've had five beers in the last hour and a half, so seven. We're... Did I have seven? No, I had seven. Oh,
0: okay. (laughs) Oh, Oh, shit. (laughs) That's a problem if I've had seven. Uh, So, yes, it's going to continue to be silly. I'm just going to go ahead and put it out there. Um, I'm going to talk about the class I'm I'm most excited for right now, and I'm also going to talk about what I'm doing tonight extraordinarily briefly. And I would like, you know... If you're if you're excited for something, and if you're whatever, if that's different from what you're playing tonight, just say what you're playing tonight. So I am excited for the Bard. Um, I've never been a Bard person in One E. I think the update that they did to the Bard to make the um, so, like inspiring. Per- or, I'm sorry, the. Uh, Inspire Courage and some of those other basic bard things cantrips that you can do every round and you don't have a cap on per day is an extraordinarily smart decision Um, it just opens up the character so that you don't
1: uh, it, it gives me you more flexibility when you don't have that cap on it you know what I think that second edition has done? And I think somebody that's played like Pokemon or Final Fantasy or something had to have worked on second edition. Sure. Because they've taken the stuff that's like shit per day and put it on more of a cooldown yes. or that yes. or that kind of like especially with Barbarian and Rage and that kind of stuff. It's just you can use it all day. You're limited. In in increments, but you're not going to treat it like an item that you're never going to like, you don't want to use because it's not the right time.
0: Right. Just like, uh, you you know, everyone talks about how in first edition you have like a couple core items that everybody has to buy. Everyone has to have your real protection. Like, they also do the same thing with the classes. If there's a core ability that your class is built around, they make that more accessible. So that's what I really like about second edition and that's why I'm excited for the bard. I'm playing one tonight um designed after Young Hama from Turquoise Jeep. Uh he does interpretive dance and uh bad rapping and I lost a rap battle in session 1. Two guy uh, that talks like this. I'm it's uh, it's been a it's been a blast. Uh John, what are you excited for/what are you playing tonight?
4: I think you hit on a lot of it. I really like how you don't have to buy, like, the same feats or the same items for all these different classes. It's really nice because it feels more flexible. And I already said that I love strength-based characters, but yet I've never played a barbarian. Tonight I will be playing a barbarian, and I'm really excited for it, and I think a lot of the changes that come with it are great. Like, as Griff said, the rounds, it's not rounds of rage. You just rage for a minute when you enter a rage until the combat ends or you go unconscious, then you just have to wait a cooldown. And it's just such a way more simple, like, way of of having this like ability that I, like, despite all the other characters I've made that are strength-based, I did. I've done fighters, I've done. I've done Inquisitors, I've done uh, Slayer. Slayer, yeah. So I've done all these different characters, but like I always shied away from Barbarian because I didn't really like the way that like they essentially progressed and the just the kind of the way the rage worked, but now that's a complete change, so it's something that I'm really Really excited to get into because like I feel like it's just made for what I want to do. I want to smash.
1: I think we found a pretty broken combo as of last session. It's not it's not broken, but it's boss killing is uh is magic. Get your barbarian weapon. magic weapon at level one. Yeah,
4: and again, like again, another thing that wasn't that useful in in uh the first edition. Oh, it
1: certainly didn't give you another damage no. die. Yeah.
4: <laughs> but being able to swing, I'm also, I, I based my build around like a monster hunter build. I'm going the giant instinct barbarian with a large weapon and when I get hit with a magic weapon I get to double my damage die if I'm two-handing a bastard sword that's 2d12s at level 1.
0: And who give you that magic weapon? Young Hover. <laughs> I, I, Lee was, I was, uh, it was definitely me it's not my soul oh list. no it was oh
4: we all had a different memory of that but he is you were correct it was nobody you nobody remembers anything. We do. <laughs>
1: I did it first somebody has to keep notes nope, you, you did, did
4: it. no he did it in the, the uh, one shot a little one oh, shot the, just to test out some we characters. played yeah.
1: uh bandits of eminwood or whatever it is yeah. all right great yeah that was a canon one <laughs> shot yeah <laughs> everything's canon.
5: Steve, you seem a little salty about this. I
4: am. (laughs) It it was a highly effective move. That caused me to aggro most of the monsters and get instantly knocked the fuck out.
6: (laughs) He's just mad he's not a trailblazer like me.
0: (laughs) Trailblaze this, Chris.
2: How about, uh, you
0: don't go next. It's
2: gonna be Eric. Oh. Alrighty. So, I'm most looking forward to, and I'll preface this that I actually haven't looked at spellcasting in 2E yet. I'm playing a ranger in our campaign at the moment. Uh, If he ends up dying, I might look at the witch of the playtest class. But I'd most like to see the arcanist and how that goes into 2E. Because in 1E, unless you are crafting magical items and or using a shit ton of metamagic feats, there is no reason to play wizard. Just Unless you're an exploiter wizard, which is a better arcanist. See, archetypes are a different story. <laughs> Definitely different story. But arcanist is a lot of fun because you can basically take your spells and then the pre- spells you prepare, you just pretend you're a sorcerer with that flexible list and you get a bunch of fun little uh, tricks on top of that, like a bloodline. So I think that was a really fun thing to do in 1E, and I'll be curious to see kind of how those hybrid classes transfer over to 2E. I really want to see somebody play an Arcanist on a
1: podcast. If any of you are thinking about that as your uh, potential backup, I fully endorse that because I haven't seen that yet. I think that's just better in my opinion than a wizard just in terms of flavor and and again to your point like having a bloodline and that kind of stuff is so cool and so unique and really builds the story around that character more than a wizard does
0: well, there's a man around this table that i want to share bloodline with uh that's tim
1: uh, don't you
5: already i thought your I was mom say, was I, the same i think uh we I, did that
0: i think legally we share a bloodline after living together for like six years yeah
5: right uh, uh tax benefits are insane. I mean, we were on the list. On are the you lease common law spouse. married? We,
0: oh, yeah, common <laughs> the, law marriage, no no joke. At uh, the first apartment that the two of us lived in, uh, they just auto-filled on the lease that we were spouses even though we didn't say we were. Get right. off that energy. It's okay. Yep. Very
5: progressive. Yep. Um, yeah, uh, I, I'm playing a wizard actually in 2E, but uh, that was mostly because I was thinking wizard was, I mean, it's, it, it is the whiteboard you know, theoretical best class in first edition. I wanted to see how it changed in second um, and play around with some of that. It, it's been really fun, but I, I am most excited for see when you when you pose this question, I was thinking about potential classes that may come out. I'm excited for a scald type of class oh, i think yeah, you can dude. do it i think you can do it with the multi-classing the dedication but feats. you can't give other people rage can you yeah exactly that's what i want to do i want to buff other people with rage against i want to punk rock look. out it's awesome i love the scald. i hope they bring it back for tui i also love scale uh excuse me spell kenning which is an oh, ability yeah. that lets you just like cast anything like anything any spell? Oh,
1: I can cast this level. Let me yeah. pick
5: any list that it right. shows up at this level for. Yeah, it's it's out of combat, but it's like yeah. I think
1: the it's most interesting uh 1E to 2E change is that you've made a very viable hobgoblin wizard. Yes. And that's like <laughs> Well, and in, in first edition, that wasn't really a cl- uh, a race that you no, would no. you would expect to be a wizard. But in second edition, they've really changed the hobgoblin around, and it's really interesting that you have what intelligence and constitution.
5: Yeah, those it's are my like bones. the perfect yeah. wizard class. It is or wizard
1: race rather yeah. or ancestry for going to e. That's yeah,
5: curious because I think the hobgoblin is like an anti-elf race, and they consider most arcane magic to be elven magic. So. The fact that it's so compatible is kind of weird, but we'll see how it plays out. We'll figure it out. It's just like goblins that can't read and are now like
1: completely fine. Yeah, <laughs> as a core race. <laughs> well,
0: all right, keeping it moving here. We've got Haley over here. What you excited for? What you playing?
3: So I'm currently playing a uh, Leshy monk. Um, I'm still on the border of two e. Like I don't know. It's still very, very different and. It's just it feels like a lot less right now for me because I came into 1E with so much already established that I'm currently still in the skeptical stage, if I'll be honest. Yeah, we
1: were in like six or seven years of 1E when we came in.
3: And that's what I came into, so much established that now like 2E is out and I'm like still in that skeptical stage. So I will say that I'm legitimately and very honestly not super excited about anything right now, I want to test everything. So we'll see. I'll, I might get more excited as we as it goes on, but right now I'm just so, what is this?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and you said, I'm sorry, did you say you're playing a monk tonight?
3: Yeah, a leshy monk. Um, and right now I'm I'm playing a leshy monk and my, uh, right now I haven't really decided where I'm going with it, but sh- strength and depths are currently the same for me.
1: What'd you uh, cast this character as? Because I love it.
3: Oh, um, wh- like, what do you mean casted as?
1: I mean, she's based off of a character in a cartoon, right?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So personality-wise, this is supposed to match, um, if anyone's watched, uh, she um, it's, like, uh, it's coming back on Netflix, so it's, it's, like, there's a new version on, on Netflix, but, so there's this, uh, like, scorpion princess, and she's this over overly excited, but she's on the bad guys team, but she I don't think she fully understands She doesn't
1: that. seem that bad.
3: <laughs> no, and she's just all about like super excited and uh, but she's kinda like on the bad guys team. So that's that's what I cast in us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Griff, I think that pretty much wraps it up, right?
6: Yeah, sure, Steve. Yeah, for uh, sure. Of course
0: he jumped right in there. <laughs> I'm uh I'm worried to hear what our boy Krusty oh, Crust has to on. say no. about two
6: E. I won't be talking.
0: I'm I swear. looking
1: for a class that just utilizes the bird poise to their fullest potential. <laughs> <laughs> Something like a uh, a rookery class. He,
3: I'll he, say Chris put in a serious, serious amount of thought to tr- how to make the most uh damage dealing cleric.
0: And, he, and he's trying to be a real closer.
6: Yeah. I'm going to save bird points and stuff for more intimate Zone and Truth. Zone and Truth, okay? So we'll, we'll save that for later. What I do want to say is, as a inexper- pretty inexperienced 1E player, you know, I've only played a couple of characters, my experience with 1E informs how, what I think about 2E in, in the sense that playing identical characters between the editions makes my 1E characters almost a foil for the 2e ones that I play, and it allows me to contrast the differences between the two. For example, like I'm playing a cleric in our 2e game. I just played a cleric in our Scarwall game. So that lets me see sort of the differences in those castings. That being said, my favorite class so far that I played in 1e is the magus. I'm playing one now in return and it is, yeah, by far and away my favorite class, you know, spellcasting and martial. It's like a mix between the two. It's awesome. So, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, a Mages class in TUI and what they do with it.
1: I'll be surprised if they don't just allow the, um, the multi-classing that they have now, but have a spell strike feat, because that seems pretty damn close to the Mages in terms of second edition yeah. right now. However, they
6: translate the role of the Mages into TUI, I'm looking forward to
0: seeing what they do with that. Well, I think we've had a lot of fun tonight. Wouldn't you say so, guys? I
1: didn't get to go. (laughs) Woo!
0: Yeah, I was just trying to shut it down. (laughs) Does anybody have anything they want to say? Just kidding. Uh, Griffin, you're not playing tonight. You are GMing. I am. And I know for a fact that you are all sorts of excited about 2E. Yes, sir. So, in the spirit of this question, what
1: are you really looking forward to from a class perspective? So... At looking at the roster right now and what's coming out in the advanced players guide, I'm actually very happy with the advanced players guide because it's a different diversity than we got in the first uh, the first edition advanced players guide, and I think it's I think it's really cool. I love Swashbuckler, I love Investigator. I think Witch needed to be in and Oracle needed to be in in terms of Pathfinder, but I'm really excited in a couple of ways and it's going to be kind of broad strokes here i'm really excited to see how they deal with the um in first edition basically the combining of two classes stuff like the blood rager which is one of my favorite first edition classes i'm curious if you can get to a different feel for a blood rager standalone class than you can with a barbarian sorcerer Mix. Yeah. Because the mixes are so
2: good. One thing I've noticed just kind of looking through like what is this character gonna look at or look like at a higher level. Again, I'm going with a ranger right now, and I really had to pick between two weapon fighting or the the hunt prey, the favorite enemy type thing. So I can two up and fight, but I don't get extra damage. So I feel like there's a lot of classes that are pick one or the other where you used to be able to do both. And I also don't see as many feet chains. So it's kind of a lot more broad strokes and one specialization. So it'll be interesting to see, like you said, like combining things, whereas most classes only have one thing you can focus on. Yeah, like what are they the pick? options? Yeah. What do
1: they pick from either either set? But realistically, most excited for the occult classes, want them in ASAP. That's mic drop that's what i want i don't think i disagree with you man
0: there's some really cool shit in those occult classes and i think it will translate really well to
1: uh, second edition
0: isn't investigator in investigator is
1: not investigator is oh, the man. rogue alchemist or hybrid uh, yeah. hybrid which i think they did really well so i i have a lot of faith all right i have a lot of faith because i think the even in the play test the investigator looks really cool and has its own very unique feats all right, folks, well, I think that
0: about does it for our listener questions, which means it's about time for us to wrap up. If you have listened to the Zone of Truth before, you know a lot of the voices that you've heard tonight. So you have Krusty Crust on the Discord. You have a- Haley HLP on the Discord. You've got Lover 69 and 10 Lawn Gnomes. That's how you can reach them all. John, are you on our Discord? I am. I think I'm Crispy Kraken. Crispy Kraken. Classic. So if you want to reach out to any of these guys, just add them. And uh, kind of just by showing up on the show, you uh, give us permission to have our fans reach out to you. Got so, it. Uh, sorry, sorry, guys. It's a contract you sign.
6: Send me pictures of birds you see in the wilderness. Yeah, do that. I-
4: what if? What about birds in captivity? Yeah, either or. Okay.
0: Well, we're about to, we're about to shut down here. So, any of our guests tonight on you guys got anything you want to say to the listeners at home? Any any final thoughts? Any goodbyes? Tim, do you have twelve different things you want to say about the Uzmore Shifter?
5: Yes. Is that is now the appropriate time? Uh, yeah, sure. All right. So, if you take the Uzmore Shifter, uh, there there's a few other problems I want to point out. One is that. Uh, you can't talk at all So I went with the Lushinta, Uh Because they have telepathic abilities um, So consider that
4: Oh, Fade them out. If you're fading, if fielding questions here, if they can't talk, do they not know language? Or is it just that they can't physically talk?
5: No, they they can't talk. They don't have no mouth. Okay,
4: okay continue. Yeah,
5: so that's a problem. Yep. Um, if you want to wear any items, you better be sure they have enhancement bonuses uh, that are that are not like armor or anything like that. Because because like when you're in your ooze form, they just meld into your body. So you don't get the benefits of them, but you can carry them around. So that's a real problem with Usemorph, which is why you need like six hours of time at least to get through an adventuring day. Um, So that was a problem I dealt with. (laughs) What what, what about Wild Empathy? Yeah, so another thing is is that they trade out the Wild Empathy feat, which allows you to switch animal handling and diplomacy with just specific to oozes because you've always wanted to diplomatize with oozes right Um, they come up a lot in campaigns
4: and there's so Um, many oozes you find in the world which is way more than any other kind of maybe like a regular animal
5: yeah I don't really want to talk to animals I'd rather talk to oozes I think that's better especially since charisma is so key to the shifter class Um, (laughs) you really you really want to boost charisma a lot so you can get a high diplomacy so you can talk to oozes Especially because um,
2: you probably have a lot of skills to spare as well.
5: Right. I mean, if you multiclass into rogue, you have a lot of skills. <laughs>
0: he, he's tur- That's why you do the multi-class. He's not <laughs> done.
5: Yeah. Uh, he's so, sweating.
4: I can. I can see it.
0: <laughs> yeah.
5: I, he's I, oozing. <laughs> I just. I have a lot to share about the Ouse Morph Shifter. I think it's. Uh, I think it's overlooked shall we say.
6: My cheeks hurt so um, much.
5: <laughs> Which cheeks? You've
3: talked about so many issues with it.
5: <laughs> well, yeah.
2: I mean, don't play it. Don't do not do it. It's not good. It's not so good. we've been playing this game for, we started this at basically the start of June, and Tim thought this character was so important, he never actually put a real character sheet to it. This is a hand-drawn on graph paper, this is how you do it.
4: There's a bunch of yarn connecting different pieces. It's it's like a big old board. For what are those
5: stains? I've got four matrices of attacks. One with piranha strike. One with uh, all of my attacks, with including the unarmed strike from the monk. By the way, didn't mention that. Got a great. I a- oh, no, the AC's pretty under under. Uh, pretty not. It's not. I wonder good. who's still listening at this point. <laughs> um, I can get ghost touch on three of my attacks. Out of the seven,
3: that justifies the whole class.
5: Well, I was with an item. <laughs> <laughs> Op, please nerf. <laughs> Did yes. I mention my twenty-foot swim speed? It's pretty good. You have Grif, a swim for the love speed, of God, <laughs> take uh, us home. All right,
1: <laughs> everybody, finish your drinks. We'll see you in two weeks. Later.